You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome the History of the Great War Premium Episode 16. This is our second and final episode on what life was like in the occupied territories of Europe during World War I. And this time we are taking our story to the east and into the areas of Russia that were captured by the Germans during the war. What happened in the east had some similarities with the situation in France and Belgium, although there were also many differences. The main differences started with the size of the area occupied, with hundreds of thousands of square kilometers captured by the Central Powers after 1915. This area was also far less densely populated and far less regulated and controlled by the Russians before the war, when it was compared to France and Belgium in the West. And this created a different climate and culture for the Germans to occupy, as well as introducing new challenges. However, these were just surface-level differences. There were other, more important differences around how the Germans occupied the areas, which revolved around how they judged the people within those areas. In these judgments can be seen long and deep-seated racism that, while resulting in negative consequences for the inhabitants, would be amplified by the German experience to then be unleashed in a far more powerful form in the next war. To discuss this topic, we will start with an overview of the situation in Poland, where the Germans organized, exploited, and then tried to cajole the Polish people into helping with the war. Most of this episode, however, will focus on the situation to the north, in the area of modern-day Lithuania and Latvia, which was occupied and put under German administration in a district called Oberost. This area, organized by Ludendorff himself and ran by the military, is an interesting area of study that I think says a lot about how Germans, and especially the German military, viewed the lands in the East, and how the people who lived there, and also gives us a look into the German psyche as a whole. When the Germans found themselves in control of most of Poland in late 1915, the question became how to administer the new area. While economic exploitation was the most important goal, there were both long-term plans to consider as well as just simple questions about how to control such a large space. The Germans assumed that if they won the war, they would continue to rule over their section of Poland, since it would probably be split up with Austria-Hungary. Or at the very least, they hoped that they would be able to put in a government that would be sympathetic to their desires. So thought had to be given to both long-term and short-term administration. In Poland, Germany would be in absolute control over the northern half of the area, and it was put under the control of Governor General von Bessler. 
Even though it was commanded by a general, it was still a civilian administration. But Vessler was not a skilled or seasoned administrator. When he found out about his task, he took to it with gusto, though. He did a lot of reading about the history of Poland and the surrounding areas to try and get familiar with the situation that he was about to be put in charge of. Overall, over the course of his time as governor general, he was a moderating influence on German policy. The Germans also set up a civilian administrative body that operated under the governor general to take care of some of the smaller day-to-day administrative tasks. However, the biggest restraining factor was the fact that there were large numbers of ethnic Poles in both Germany and Austria-Hungary, many in important war industries. For example, Polish seasonal workers were very important to the harvest in eastern Germany. In fact, in 1914, when the war started, there were 350,000 Polish workers in Germany, which caused a huge security concern, even though it would end up not being a problem. The Polish minorities in both Germany and Austria-Hungary did not let their nationality get in their way of being too concerned about their Polish brethren, but they would still put pressure on the governments to only go so far in their exploitation, although this was still quite far. By the spring of 1916, there were over 500,000 Polish civilian workers in Germany. Most of them had been brought in without their consent, and this almost entirely stripped some Polish regions of any skilled workers. Along with hundreds of thousands of workers, the Germans also, of course, took food. Just like in Romania, Germany and Austria-Hungary ravenously ate through the Polish harvest. It reached the point later in the war that Austria-Hungary was sending new units, and even those who were on leave from the front, to Poland, because it was easier for them to get food there than in the empire. In total, Austria-Hungary estimated that 15% of the entire army's food came from the occupied territories, so that's like Poland and southern Russia. For the German troops, they were allowed to send up to 5 kilogram parcels of food back to their families in Germany, and this would eventually end up representing tens of thousands of tons of food in general. Overall, and even though the total harvest would decline on a year-over-year basis for the duration of the war, the occupiers were still able to take 1.2 million tons of grain, 220 tons of potatoes, millions of livestock, and miles and miles of forests out of the country. This had the inevitable effect on the populations of the region, with the amount of food available to Polish citizens drastically being reduced. This caused hunger and malnutrition, especially in the larger cities, where the death toll would rise not just from lack of food, but also a lack of fuel, clothing, and cleaning supplies. Disease would run wild in Warsaw, claiming a death rate of double what it had been before the war. Now, I did mention earlier that the, Germ- the Polish minorities in Germany were a moderating influence, and that doesn't sound very moderate. But you have to remember that at this point, we're talking the last year and a half, maybe the last two years of the war, people were literally starving to death in German cities. German citizens in Germany still had no food. So it was hard for them to find sympathy for somebody else, somewhere else, also not having food and having all the problems associated with it. This level of exploitation and hardship did not prevent the Germans from trying to convince the Poles that they should join the German side in the last few years of the war. After 1916, it was a constant need for warm bodies at the front, which forced Falkenhayn and the other German leaders to attempt to raise a Polish army. To do this, they produced a declaration in November 1916 that was given to the Poles from Germany and Austria-Hungary that discussed post-war plans for their country. 
This included a pledge to make them an autonomous state and give them a constitutional monarchy to lead them. This type of arrangement sounds positive and was probably more than the Poles expected after the war. But Germany and Austria-Hungary could not agree on what any of the specifics should be, and so they could not include them. This meant that the declaration promised a monarch without saying who, and a country without giving its proposed borders. This, of course, was a very transparent attempt to coerce the, the Poles into the war for nothing, and all the Poles recognized it. So instead of bringing the Poles to the German side in mass, it instead alienated them even more. It would only result in the recruitment of about 3,000 total soldiers, less than 10% of what had been hoped. The Germans and Austrians would never have held themselves to these promises anyway, as broad as they were, so this was the correct move for the Poles. We now turn our eyes slightly north, to Oberost. Oberost was made up of modern-day Lithuania, Latvia, a little bit of Estonia, so it was a very large area, the largest of all of the areas that Germany would occupy for more than just the last year of the war. What can be seen in Germany's occupation policies for this area is how they both viewed the East, how they sought to tame it, and how their failures would influence a later generation of Germans who would attempt to do the same thing. This area was very different than the areas occupied in the West, or even to Poland, because those areas were far more familiar than this area far in the East. What the German soldiers and officers saw was a giant, unclaimed, unruly, and uncultured wilderness. There was also a strongly held belief that the people in the East were unclean, that they had, had to be molded and shaped into something better, and only the Germans could do that by shaping them in their own image. Because of this, they sought to bring everything under control. The first result of this movement was, of course, economic exploitation, just like everywhere else. However, it then extended far beyond that. There were pervasive movement policies that restricted any movement by the natives. There were cultural education programs and efforts to bring them into line with what the Germans saw as correct and proper behavior. All of these programs w would just increase the resistance among the Lithuanians and Latvians, making it harder and harder for the Germans to get what they wanted from the area or to control it. The failures of these policies would leave a legacy, and the Germans and then the Nazis would study these failures for later use. They would learn things, sometimes the wrong things, and it would result in not less efforts to control but more, with more stringent measures to ensure control and far more suffering. So with that very cheery intro to this section, let's talk about how the Germans arrived in this area. Overall, about half as many German troops would fight in the East as in the West, and when they advanced into Russia, the scale and space of the East made it difficult for them to wrap their heads around it. In both wars, first-hand German accounts are filled with just amazement at the sheer size of the land, and how it felt like it went on forever. They also advanced into areas where the people's cultures and custom, customs were far more alien than in the West. It also seemed like these people were living in the past with little civilian administration to guide and shape them. While these areas were indeed generally far less regimented than the Germans were used to, this fact was just amplified by the flight of many local Russians when the Germans were advancing. The Tsar had sent many Russians into these areas to both administer the regions and to attempt to Russify them. However, with the German advances, most of these people fled. 
This meant that almost the entire set of administrators, school teachers, and police, along with other professions, were no longer present when the Germans arrived. On top of these people leaving the area was just the generally same sort of effect that all areas of Europe experienced when the tides of war moved through them, general destruction, dishevelment, and despair. However, since this was the first time that the Germans were really experiencing the area, all they knew is what they saw, and they believed that it was normal. When Ludendorff and other German leaders looked over what they saw, they thought that there were items upon which they could improve, and they wanted to. In their minds, all they had to do was rationalize and define the societal structures, and they sought to do this by making them more German. Along with this, they believed that they could educate the people and teach them a better way to live. But before they could do all that, they had to set up an occupying government. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Unlike most other occupied areas, Oberost was administered by the military, and this was done due to the wishes of Ludendorff, who thought that he and the military could do a better job than those civilians. He sustained this setup because Oberost ran without any subsidies from Germany proper, and this meant that he did not have to compromise the military's power for support. It was also easy to prevent an influx of high-level civilian control, because he set up an administrative bureaucracy which would attempt to change Oberost through a series of programs. The first of these would be to secure the areas behind the front to make sure that there were no security concerns, an obvious first step. Then it would move to a system of complete and total economic exploitation, before moving on to its final objective, which took Oberost into the future. This would involve the complete remaking of the land into a German state. And to accomplish all of these goals, Ludendorff put in place an administration which would eventually contain 10,000 people. These were entirely men, and visits from family were strictly prohibited. This created a sense of isolation. Most, 
most of these men would be brought into the country in the fall of 1915. However, for even the most skilled and seasoned administrators, many of whom had been involved in civilian government before being brought into the army in 1914, there were still real challenges. These challenges were made worse due to internal competition and friction between departments of the administration, which resulted in sometimes confusing orders and at times a complete lack of guidance from above, thus giving local officials much more autonomy than they could or would have expected. Under all of these efforts for reform were a large series of brutal and violent rules, which would see oppression become the rule and not the exception. The system of oppression was a critical part of the exploitation campaign, and they used it as a basis for setting up a system of collecting taxes, setting up state-run monopolies and state-run businesses that were able to export a huge amount of money and goods. Over the course of the war, there would be about 350 million marks worth of goods, and this was split between the value of natural resources, trade-up taxes, and a widespread of requisitioning of goods for the war effort. At times, the Germans would offer to pay for the goods that were requisitioned, but even when they did this, it was often paid for in paper money, which the natives believed, quite rightly, was worthless. There were also random acts of requisitioning. For an example, if an area failed to meet the goals for grain requisitions, then their horses might be taken. Later in the war, the confiscation of horses was a common act because of how valuable they were, and the Germans would find the smallest excuse to take them. There was also just a general mass exportation of all farm livestock, with Oberau seeking to provide a third of all the meat needed for all the German troops on the Eastern Front. So 90,000 horses, 140,000 cattle, 760,000 pigs were all taken. This would dramatically reduce the available breeding stock early in the war, which meant in later years, the Oberost livestock replenishment rate would be much smaller than it should have been. This is the same mistake that the Germans had made with their own livestock populations early in the war. There were also other bits of short-term thinking that were problematic. Like in 1916, when it was decreed that all arable land must be planted during the 1916 season. Take, talk to any farmer, and the world over, and they would tell you that this can be problematic. In some areas, this just resulted in a massive waste of seed, because in many areas, the yields did not even make up for what had been planted. The Germans just simply did not take the local conditions into account, and they certainly would not have listened to a local if they had told them otherwise. This failure did not prevent further interference in later years. Instead, the Germans generally just fell back on a healthy dose of blaming the locals. Of course, the true cost to the native populations was not measured just in the goods that were taken or the failures they were accused of. The real cost started with control. When military rule was put in place, they brought with them an obsessive need to control the entire area. All people over the age of 10 were registered, photographed, and issued with an identity card. This would result in over 1.8 million people being registered during the war, and an interesting fact, it would take 12,000 pens and 177 liters of ink to catalog them. Much like in other territories, the Germans also greatly restricted the movement of the population. At first, like in other countries, this began as a defensive measure, when security behind the front was a primary concern. However, it would be further developed instead of removed when the front moved on. 
the entire area was divided into a grid, and those inside each grid square could not leave it unless given special permission. There was no thought given to basing these borders on anything other than map coordinates, with settlements, parishes, neighbors, trading partners, and families all separated. These types of separations were ignored, and the area was mapped to better allow for exploitation efforts to be planned and tracked. Not everyone was allowed to stay in their homes, though. In October 1916, Oberost began to impress workers into labor parties that could then be moved outside of their places of residence for work. These would eventually lead to civilian worker battalions, and in these units, the life of a worker was, for lack of a better word, completely miserable. Rations were scarce, accommodations, even during the winter, were completely inadequate, and while there, were often, there was often pay involved, it was a fraction of a real livable wage. These factors resulted in a situation where these people were often literally worked to death. While such schemes were officially disbanded in 1917, it did not stop it from happening other, other names and organizational schemes. Often people who were taken from their homes and into work units were forced to sign volunteer contracts, just like the Belgian workers who had been exported into Germany, and unfortunately in the East there was no Belgium Relief Commission to help them out. The total number of workers is not completely certain. However, they were forced to work on all kinds of different stuff. The most important work that they did from the German perspective was on the rail and road networks, which were not felt to be up to German standards. The railroads all had to be converted from the Russian gauge to the German gauge, which took a tremendous amount of brack-baking work. Then there was also needs for roads to allow for transport where the rails did not go, which again took a huge amount of manual labor to create. This effort on the roads was then often just undone during the spring and fall due to the amount of rain which would turn almost any road into a bottomless pit of mud, no matter how much was put on top of them to try and fill them up. There was also an obsession with attempting to clean the people, and I mean physically clean them. For example, in Bialstok, there was repeated compulsory delousing efforts, where 2,000 inhabitants would be deloused at a time. This was the inevitable conclusion of the belief that these people were dirty, somehow deeply unclean, and it was only the Germans that could bring them out of that state. This also meant that if the people would not fall in line, they would be put in line, even if violence was necessary, and because of this, the least infraction could get a person beaten. This also served the purpose of making sure that there was a constant reminder of the space between the German occupiers and the natives, a way of constantly brutally asserting that the Germans were just better than those that lived there. This reinforced the feelings of both the natives and the Germans themselves. The soldiers were led to believe that they were just trying to bring order, and so beatings could happen for anything at any time. However, as the German grip tightened, more and more people slipped from their grasp. As famine gripped the cities, and the occupiers resorted to heavier and heavier forms of requisitioning and brutality, a growing class of bandits began to assert their power. These groups often lived in the forests that were present everywhere, and at first they were small and their actions were timid, with maybe a bit of light thievery. However, as time went on and their numbers grew, they became bolder and more daring. It got to the point where these bandit groups were attacking entire villages, often terrorizing the natives, directly attacking those who had worked with the Germans, and then killing the German soldiers. This level of lawlessness would bleed into the post-war world, 
and was especially dangerous when combined with a vacuum of power when the Germans retreated, which was then followed by the Russian Civil War and then the Soviet presence, and then a generation later the Germans were back. While all of this exploitation and violence was happening in 1916, in 1917 two things began to change. First, Hindenburg and Ludendorff left to take over supreme command of the German armies. Second, and more importantly, the Russian Revolution happened. This combined with the restlessness on the German home front and the growing calls for peace without annexation meant that the German government had to plan on how to work with places like Oberost in the future, where maybe they did not directly control the region. The hope was to co-opt the natives and get them to participate more actively in running the territories, so that after the war they could ratify permanent German rule. This type of program may have worked early in the war, and the reason for this was that the natives had not been treated particularly great by the Russians before 1914. The only difference was that under Russian rule there was a good amount of indifference about what was happening in these areas, and that was a big difference from Oberost. The Germans did not share this indifference, and instead, through restricting and constantly growing their list of rules and regulations, they killed any chance they had of creating a permanent German, a permanent pro-German government. This meant that by the time the Germans needed them, the natives felt that they were far worse off than they had been under the Russians, even though you probably would have gotten some pretty negative comments about the Russians in 1914. It's not like the Germans learned this lesson, though, that they had a chance to get the formerly Russian citizens on their side, because they would make the same mistake later, and they would also make it in 1918 Ukraine. In Ukraine, the peasants would eventually lead an open revolt against German occupation that began in early 1918, which would result in the assassination of the German governor-general in Kiev in July. But by July 1918, things were starting to fall apart for Germany everywhere, even though they had now signed a peace treaty with the newly Soviet Russia. When the spring 1918 offensives began, there were a million men in the east. However, by the time of the armistice, this number had dropped to less than half a million. As a result, because men had been pulled from the east and sent to the west due to the lack of manpower. In his book, Warland on the Eastern Front, Culture, Natural, National Identity, and German Occupation in World War I, Vehas Lufisius says that, quote, Oberalf's military utopia was a failure. Internally, it was racked by incompatible ends and means. Its regime and ambitions left natives with nothing to lose and forced them into a new understanding of national identity, a conscious struggle for survival. Consequently, the German identity and mission in the East, which Oberost promised to build, was frustrated. End quote. For the people who lived in the East, there was a serious lack of closure to the war. The war would lead into nation-building efforts in the power vacuum of post-Russian and German rule, often with wandering freelance military units like the German Free Corps, making everything more difficult. This then led into nations that were just getting a good bit of bedrock underneath them when 1939 happened. For the Germans, there was a sense that they had beaten the Russians and conquered the land in the east, but it, it had been taken away from them, and what they brought back were stories of people who could not be tamed by normal means, and that due to their backwardness, they could not be properly ruled. 
Because of this, the belief that would come back to be held by many Germans, and especially a certain former Fuhrer, was that of Lebensbahn, or living space. However, a piece of this belief was that of Rahm, which in German means clean or to clear. And that means cleaning and clearing those who live there to make way for the superior Germans. Here's Warland on the Eastern Front again. Quote, the East appeared as an area of races and spaces, which could not be manipulated, but could only be cleared and cleaned. Failures, not only successes, have historical consequences. And Oberost was a failure of momentous importance for German views in the East. End quote. In 1939, the Germans would return, once again committing the same mistakes as in the previous war. Only the second time they would be far more brutal, destructive, and the results would be even more tragic. Overall, the story of Oberost and German occupation as a whole in the East is a textbook example about how not to do it. They took a population that they may have found to be sympathetic and turned them completely against them. It was through boneheaded moves, a complete misreading of the situation, and then a good heaping helping of racism that made them believe that they were far superior to those in this area that they were moving into. History could have been very different if they had not made those mistakes. <laughs> 